0: This episode of Yap is sponsored by Olay Body. Why do you shower? The most obvious answer is cleanliness, but there's way more to it. If you listen to Yap, you know that cold showers can improve your energy and increase your alertness. But I bet you didn't know that taking a shower as part of your morning routine can positively influence your mood for the rest of the day. For me, feeling fresh and clean helps me increase levels of mood-boosting hormones like serotonin, which ultimately leads to improved confidence, better overall mood, and motivation throughout my day. And now my showers are even better since Olay just launched a new collection of skincare-inspired body washes that are designed to treat a variety of skin conditions, like Olay's Soothing Body Wash with Vitamin B3 Complex and Oat Extract, which is specifically made to soothe eczema-prone skin. And my favorite part about it is that it's completely fragrance-free and it leaves me feeling super clean without a sticky, filmy residue. You need to give these Olay Body Washes a try. They completely changed how I thought about my body care routine and my shower. You can find Olay Body Care products in the store or online. Olay Body, fearless in my skin. You're listening to Yap young and profiting podcast, a place where you can listen, learn, and profit. Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Hala Taha, and on Young and Profiting Podcast, we investigate a new topic each week and interview some of the brightest minds in the world. My goal is to turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your everyday life, no matter your age, profession, or industry. There's no fluff on this podcast, and that's on purpose. I'm here to uncover value from my guests by doing the proper research and asking the right questions. If you're new to the show, we've chatted with the likes of ex-FBI agents, real estate moguls, self-made billionaires, CEOs, and best-selling authors. Our subject matter ranges from enhancing productivity, how to gain influence, the art of entrepreneurship, and more. If you're smart and like to continually improve yourself, hit the subscribe button because you'll love it here at Young and Profiting Podcast. Hello, everybody. You are listening to a live episode of Young and Profiting Podcast. I'm your host, Halataha. And Young and Profiting Podcast, if you haven't heard of it, we are a number one education podcast across all apps. And every Tuesday at 8 p.m. Eastern, we have a live episode of Young and Profiting Podcast here on Clubhouse in the Human Behavior Club. Today, we are joined by the Lived Experienced Leaders Alliance, And we are talking about human trafficking. We're going to have a a spotlight on sex trafficking specifically, and we're going to be covering some important topics in terms of the ongoing fight against human trafficking and how communities can better serve those impacted by exploitation. So for those of you guys who don't know, human trafficking is a multi-billion dollar criminal industry that denies freedom of 24.9 million people around the world. So you heard that right. In 2021, there's an estimated 25 million people who are currently modern slaves and traffickers. They exploit their victims through many different ways of human slavery, like sex work, forced labor, organ removal. We will get into all of that. And this is a worldwide issue. This is not just in third world countries or unstable parts of the world. And poverty, a lack of education, war, those are just some of the key drivers that contribute to these alarming stats. So like I mentioned before, today we have Leela or the Lived Experience Leaders Alliance on the panel to help us understand the state of human trafficking in the world and what we can do about it. And all of our panelists here today have survived some sort of trafficking. Trafficking experience and now are dedicated to ending human trafficking. So I really appreciate everybody who took the time today for this panel to raise awareness on human trafficking. Thank you so much for joining us. And the way that this is going to work today is that we're going to have a guided interview for about 60 minutes or so. And then we're going to open it up to Q&A, but I'm happy to make this as interactive as possible. So if you guys have a question for the panel, raise your hand, put your question in the bio, and then we'll get to you. For everybody who's on stage, the way that it will work is we'll have a guided interview. And then if you'd like to respond, just flash your mic, and then we can have a organized conversation. And that way, I can kind of just ping it to whoever flashed their mic first, and then we can go around. All right. So let's kick off this conversation. For everybody on the panel, I'd love to get a general understanding of the history of human trafficking in the world. So when did it begin and why does it continue to flourish? Who would like to answer that?
1: Hi, everybody. My name's Ryan. It's such a pleasure to be here. So one of my favorite topics to speak about is obviously sex trafficking and human trafficking. And I love getting into the nitty gritty of it. My own personal experience with sex trafficking is at the age of 16, I was recruited by a gang and I was brought in and groomed and then turned out as a sex trafficked child. At the age of 16, you can't consent sex and you obviously cannot consent to prostitution as that was also illegal at the time. So that was my personal experience. I was trafficked in and out of multiple gangs. And then I went on to experience just a lot of struggles in my life after that, a lot of behavioral patternings that result in a lot of trauma, PTSD. And so I love researching the history of where did this start? How did this become a thing? And how did I get so trapped up into it and not know what was happening? And so that actually took me back to Mesopotamia times and when our culture, when the world had a goddess culture, what happened is, is there were male priests that would act instead of the high priestess during the different ceremonies that took place. And these priests, instead of a priestess, they would wear a crown for the crowning of birth, and they would wear a cape, and they would also wear phallic breasts, and they would act instead of the priestess. And what slowly became as a change is when, during Mesopotamia times, the Greeks actually shifted from the great goddess Ishtar, or Inyana, she had many different names across the world, And they took her son, who was actually referred to as Dionysus, and they actually turned him into Zeus. And so what they did is they separated the male from the female, and they brought up this Zeus to be motherless. And then they took the great goddess and they split, they factioned off her personalities, and they created all these demigoddesses as a result. And so then what happened is they started there were three different kind of factions there was high priestess who would have sex with what became of kings at the time there hadn't been kings before this and then there was women that would also act in they would help men that were returning from war because people had moved from traveling from like nomad and warrior life and they were moving into agricultural times. And so they had these women that would serve as priestesses to help bring men back into the fold of community and society and to, you know, essentially help them to just acclimate to life away from war and to help them with their PTSD. And then they had wives young women that would be brought in and they would actually have to serve as a prostitute and or have sex with somebody in exchange for men that would come to the temple and give the temple money to act as their dowry. And that's actually one of the first recorded instances of how prostitution and sex became. It actually was brought in when there was a religion shift and they separated the great mother and the great father and they started committing to kings and queens. So it's really interesting how it actually started with religion. I don't know if anybody else wants to jump up and take the mic. I know a few others here also love this conversation and this talk.
2: Oh, I see Jess. guys. Right, <laughs> <Yes, Hi, someone. laughs> I, I love you, Wait, I live right by an Air Force base. So there was like a full air show overhead. And I was like, I cannot answer this question. I want to so bad. Rae, you, I love your perspective because you nail it from... This goddess feminine side that I I truly believe is so important for all of us and it is so magnificent to understand history. My favorite quote of all time is, the only thing we learn from history is that we never learn from history. And I too am a trafficking survivor. I was trafficked both domestically and internationally as a minor. And I have spent the last 20 years like really trying to reconcile what happened to me in that process What I've learned is really that there is never a time in history that slavery of some form hasn't existed, whether it's forced labor. And for me, in my definitions, I view sex work as work. And so I view being forced into the sex industry, that was a form of labor. I have that viewpoint because my husband is actually a survivor of labor trafficking. He was trafficked into the construction industry as a minor and was just forced to work long hours with not enough food. And it's different, but yet... My body has actually been a lot more resilient than his because the labor that a person has to go through in construction, especially while they're developing, is really hard on the body. And so why do we have these different cultural ideas that there are certain things that are more damaging to the psyche, to the body than other things? But really, if we're going to talk about history, it's that slavery and inequality has existed in every race at some point throughout history. We have never experienced a time in history where all people were truly treated as equal. And I have to live in the hope that we are going that direction with more and more people's eyes being opened and so really I see this as a time where because of the internet we're able to be more aware as to what's happening globally and right now and we can look at the lens of history and say wow it's never really been great it's time to make our impact now because we have voice we have power that we've never had before in history
0: so thank you I'm Jess I'm complete Thanks, Jess and Rianne, for that awesome explanation in terms of the history. So let's talk about the different categories that human trafficking can kind of fall into. From my understanding, it's sex trafficking, labor trafficking, and organ trafficking, which is like the lesser known of the three, I think, or the less talked about. So let's start with sex trafficking, which I think we're going to spend most of the conversation on today. Can somebody please define it and then also describe the main players involved with sex trafficking? So namely pimps, traffickers, buyers, and victims, I'll know, although I know that's a touchy word for some people.
3: Hello, my name is Jamie. Thank you for having me. Hello, everybody listening. I am also a lived experience expert, um, specifically to the experience of domestic Sex trafficking, pimp-controlled mostly, or self-exploited. So sex trafficking, I don't know. I don't have the Google definitions right in front, me, in front of me, but basically it's going to be anybody profiting off of somebody's sexual acts by use of force, fraud, or coercion, unless it is a minor, um, whatever a minor is considered in domestically in each state, and then internationally. I'm not sure of what the laws are. These are domestic um, federal laws. So by use force, fraud, or coercion, unless under 18, it's automatically sex trafficking. There does not have to be a third-party profiter. Um, It can be just the exchange for survival sex. It can be just the buyer and the person selling the act, whatever that looks like. There does not have to be a pimp for it to be considered trafficking of a minor. Labor trafficking is going to be, again, force, fraud, or coercion. By force of labor, so anybody who is not getting paid wage, a livable wage, anybody who is being forced to work over a certain amount of hours, um, anything going against labor laws, there's more in-depth definitions, but labor trafficking would be the use of force, fraud, or coercion for labor and manufacturing and things like that. There's organ trafficking where people are mm-hmm. literally, their organs are cut out of their bodies and sold on the black market that is definitely the least talked about form of human trafficking. It is very, uh, as you can imagine, it is just vile and it also does not have to be forced. It can be voluntary. People are put into a position of poverty or and or coercion of some sort to where they feel like they have to sell their organs and that's an option. So they can be looked at as, as a voluntary type of thing, as can sex trafficking and labor trafficking, where really it's by coercion or by force of societal factors. There's also domestic servitude, where People are, I mean, exactly what it sounds like, where you are literally kept in somebody's home or workplace, and you are forced to be their servant, uh, whether that be through babysitting, uh, nannying, cleaning their home, where you're not getting compensated. And oftentimes that's partnered with sexual abuse, if not sex trafficking. A lot of these intersect with each other. Outside of domestic servitude, there's also child, child brides, forced marriage, and I believe I'm missing one, Rasha, I'm not sure if you want to take over, but off the top of my head, that would be my knowledge on the different definitions of the different types of human trafficking.
4: No, I think you've touched on on everything. Child soldiers is the last uh, category. Child soldiers is in areas of conflict. Uh, you'll find that children are taken to be part of uh, militias, and these are, it's very common in, in countries like Africa, in where there are conflicts. I mean, nowadays, in Iraq, it, it happens, it's happening all over the world. The thing about trafficking in general, it's one thing that we, we really need to emphasize is the fact that it doesn't happen in one area. It happens all over the world and it takes on various forms, but it happens all over the world. So I think Jamie
0: gave a, a wonderful explanation of the whole lot. Thank you. Thank you for that breakdown of all the different human trafficking types. So let's talk about some of the myths and the misconceptions when it comes to human trafficking. And I'll solicit some of them and, and then you guys can chime in in terms of, you know, the the other perspective. So a lot of people think that human trafficking involves kidnapping or physically forcing someone into a situation. So uh, let's go to Rasha. What do you think about that? Thank you, Hella. Um, first of all, the
4: misconception of kidnapping is very is a very sensationalized view of trafficking. It doesn't usually happen that way. It happens with what you call grooming, and it's the with the Romeo effect in terms of having somebody kind of love love bomb you, talk and and gain your trust and confidence. So the idea of kidnapping does not happen. As often as one would see, it's not in like the films, like a film, you know, like in Taken, for example. So it's it's much more subtle than that. It's somebody who acquires your your trust and your confidence and exploits you in that manner. So he uses um, or she uses, because trafficking goes for all genders. That's another misconception: is that it's it's really attracting a person and gaining that person's trust for the use of, as Jamie said, the uh,
0: fraud or coercion. Thank you. I think that was a great explanation. So then that dovetails into this point. Traffickers target victims they don't know. So they only target strangers.
1: I would definitely like to jump in on this one, Hala. I want to actually pick up a little bit where Russia left off, which is to discuss, we're going to take it back. I mean, one of the largest known cases, I think, that hit the world through Netflix was about the Jeffrey Epstein case. And what you saw during the Jeffrey Epstein case was that he actually had another woman help him. And then they did like a pyramid scheme kind of situation where they had young girls bringing in other young girls. And a lot of what you see when we discuss, you know, sex trafficking, and I believe so, you know, even when it comes to servitude, and it could potentially be an organ issue as well, is that we have people that are coming from, you know, a place of disenchantment, a place of poverty, perhaps Um, they need something, they have familial ties, you know, uh, in different countries, like say Thailand, there can be a lot of honor and pride and responsibility locked up because of the family. And so, you know, with the Jeffrey Epstein case, what we saw outside of you know the classic pimp which pimping didn't actually come into effect until 1920 but we can circle back to that you know what we see with the women is there's actually a lot of a lot more going on beneath the surface there's a lot of neurochemistry that's involved in the recruitment of both a male and a female and when a woman or a young girl involves or recruits or grooms another female There's so much at play. So in the brain, we have something called dopamine. We have serotonin, which about 70% is actually derived from our stomach. And we also have oxytocin. And for young girls that enter into conversations, you know, between about the age of, I think it's like 12 to, say, 18, um, conversations with people where they feel a deep connection, it's heightened. It's heightened to a place where when they get a hit by all three of these neurochemicals, it is the equivalent and on par to an orgasm or sorry, it's actually, it's second only under an orgasm and it's on par with a heroin and crack cocaine addiction. That's how strong this hit, you know, people are like, Jess likes to say, getting high on their own supply. And that is how other people are actually brought into trafficking. So prey can become predator when you don't want to be exploited yourself, but you're still a part of this world or you have You have needs that need to be met or responsibilities or expectations are placed upon you. You know, sometimes we can end up manipulating other people into come work with us. And I know that that's something Jamie and I have discussed is that, you know, when you've been a victim of human trafficking, quite often you've also victimized other people in an effort to kind of maintain and get out. So I just wanted to circle back to that and bring up that it's not just men. It's not just love for Romeo, that it actually starts in the home uh, with these with our boundary systems and consent and you know, trying to have our needs met. And we go out in search of that and people can come into our lives and maybe unintentionally exploit it, maybe knowingly exploit it. But that's why it's such an insidious form of recruitment is because of the neurochemistry that's going on. And we often don't know our own biochemistry, especially as children. I'd like to pass the mic now.
0: Yeah, Ryan, I think that's really powerful stuff. And I if somebody on the panel would be comfortable enough to kind of share how they were exploited and coerced into, you know, becoming somebody who who was sex trafficked, if somebody is comfortable to tell their story, I think it might be a learning lesson for everybody tuning in or just to understand like how it's possible and, and how it could happen to someone.
3: I want to make sure, you know, everyone has an opportunity, but yeah, definitely. Um, I think that, you know, I don't want to say that I think my scenario is probably not an odd one out, but I think that we can all probably say that when we, when we talk about our, how we were, um, enticed or pulled into, or put in the position to, to really make certain choices or have choices made for us. Um, for me, originally my first experience with, what I consider sex trafficking, human trafficking was, was not to my knowledge. It was when I was 15. I had an older boyfriend who was 27. I, again, like Rayanne was talking about boundaries there, I was not taught that that was inappropriate. I was definitely not taught that it was illegal. And so I just thought that, oh great, this cool older guy, this cute older guy likes to take me out. And he's nice to me and he thinks I'm a woman. And so what was happening was we would go to his house and he would end up roofing my drinks, you know, give me one or two drinks. And he would have a set set of friends come over to do whatever they wanted to do. Um, And in exchange, he was getting drugs and money for that. But that was not to my, I did not know or recognize, I didn't know about that memory until I was almost 30. And so that was not an experience that I ever based any of my decisions off of. So fast forward, my experience originally with exploitation that I felt started when I was 20. I was a single mom of two. By the time I was 19, their father had joined the military to help take care of the babies. And he found out that he wanted to be in a different relationship. He was actually with a man, and so he kind of just didn't know how to handle his emotions because we don't really give men a space to process their emotions um, without judgment. And so he, being young and new to these feelings, left me and the the kids. And with that, I fell into this space of wanting to live my best life because I was 16 when I got pregnant, 17 when I had my daughter. And I felt like, man, I deserve to be able to just go out and have a one night stand and get drunk and just like do the things that everybody I felt like everybody around me was doing. And in the midst of that, I was also emotionally very vulnerable, not knowing that I was. But obviously, I think those self-doubts come in of like, what did I do? What did I do wrong? I'm not good enough. Why doesn't he want to be with me? Things like that. And so I went out one night and got really drunk. And when I got drunk, I liked to talk. And so in the midst of wanting to live my best life, I also lost my job as a waitress. So I had two young babies under the age of three where my husband was not at the time helping us financially and the military was not being helpful at all either. And so when I went to the club, I met this guy, thought he was cute. And Had no knowledge that the life of pimping and prostitution existed, none whatsoever. Maybe had been exposed to the movie Pretty Woman, which is not a realistic um, aspect of his lifestyle. So please don't base any knowledge off of that. But met this guy, told him all my vulnerabilities, pretty much laid myself on a platter to share why I needed money, why I was the perfect candidate to kind of be on a part of his team. And him being very new to this whole experience, also, I want to add in that he was not some predator out at the club really looking. He didn't really know what he was looking for. He was my age. He was just kind of doing what society groomed him to do. And that's something I think that'll come up a little bit later in the conversation of societal grooming and media and things like that. But he wasn't some older guy, some predator in my circumstance. Uh, we had a one night stand. I really liked him. He liked me. So he said, and after That night, he contacted me the next day and he just was like, you know, I know that you're struggling with your daughters and I want to just help you build a better life for them. I know how you can make, you know, a thousand dollars a night. You just got to follow my instructions. I didn't know what the hell that meant. So at first I was like, no, don't call me again because I'm not into illegal activity that I thought he wanted me to sell drugs or something. But then as I couldn't find a job a week later, as I kept thinking about him more and I kept thinking about him telling me he cared about me and my daughters, again, young and naive because we just had met, but I ended up calling him back when we started to suffer more. We didn't have gas in the car. I didn't even have gas to get to job interviews. I wasn't aware of, of resources that were provided like WIC or financial assistance for single moms or anything like that. So I wasn't in tune with any thing resourceful in the community. And so I called him and I was like, you know, whatever it was that you were saying, you can make me and my daughter's money, like, let's do it. And so he told me to get dressed and I picked him up and he took me to what's known as the track, or it would be the high volume prostitution areas where you see girls or guys walking uh, to solicit sex. And he gave me some condoms and told me to make sure I got a hundred dollars at least from... White guys or Mexican guys, don't talk to black guys, and that was pretty much my instruction. And from that night forward, I learned the game very quickly. Um, And when I say the game, I'm referencing to my sexual exploitation. That's what I knew it as was pimping and prostitution, hoeing, and the game. So that was my experience and how I got bred into this world. And that first night, within that first two hours, I had been robbed, taken to another pimp, thrown into a car and just really fell out of who I was. I, as soon as I turned that first date, I was a completely different person and everything in me changed. As soon as I exchanged that sexual act for money in that car on that super dark and to me, scary street at that time, didn't know what was going on. But like I said, I learned very quickly. So that was my introduction into that lifestyle.
0: Wow. What a crazy story, Jamie. Thank you for having the courage to share that. I'm sure that wasn't easy. Jess, I'd love to hear from you, you know, what your lived experience was like. I know you flashed your wink before, before we get into some more details in terms of, you know, the state of everything going on and how we can help and things like that.
2: Wonderful. Thank you. My experience came down to one question. I had just turned 17 years old. I had been having sex consensually since I was 12, had been abused since four. Like I had, I remember very clearly orgasming at five years old in the midst of abuse because I didn't know it was wrong. Um, But my experience with Martin, who was my pimp, Um, He asked me, he said, if you're already having sex, why wouldn't you want to get paid? And that was the most mind-blowing question I had ever heard in my entire life, because I had been groomed culturally. My parents really had the best intentions. They tried very hard, but they both, I came from generational trauma. And they didn't know how to address things. They just knew how to not talk about things. And so that, like January says, silence was her first trafficker. And in so many ways, it was my parents' silence that really just allowed abuse to continue on and on because I've been on my own since I was 14 years old. And when you're working hard and I was managing a restaurant by 17, making $2 an hour... And yet I had been giving sex away for free. I didn't, like it never occurred to me that I could get paid for it. And like Jamie's story from that very first trick, the first buyer, the first one, he actually ran me over with this car. Something happens and my brain switched and his brain switched. And the moment I paid him that first time, I chose. And it was at that moment that I lost all freedom and ability to be who I wanted and to do what I wanted. And it took me months of planning to be able to get away from him. And I'm sure we'll get into the whole rescue and exit strategies later. But for me, it really hinged on that one question and it comes down to the systemic issues really of poverty. And like I... We also must talk about gender and race and the systemic issues that we see in our culture all around us. So I'm Jess. I'm going to hang up my hat for a
0: minute. Thank you. (laughs) Thanks, Jess. Great job. Thanks for sharing that. Young and profiters, they may call me the podcast princess, but I'm also the LinkedIn queen. I've been a LinkedIn influencer for six years now, and I teach one of the most popular courses about LinkedIn. And I love to teach sales. Whether you're a seasoned investor or looking for that extra guidance, Yahoo Finance gives you all the tools and data you need in one place. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Young and profiters, I'm about to be jet-setting all over the world. I'm going to London, Cancun, New Orleans, and New York to speak. I'm gonna be up there with the bright lights, and I want to be spiffy. I want to look fresh, and so I'm going on a big shopping spree. I gotta get clothes, I gotta get hair stuff, skincare stuff, makeup. But I'm not gonna feel guilty about this shopping spree because Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Rakuten is the shopping platform for savvy savers. From May 6th to May 13th, they're having their biggest cash back event of the year. I'm talking about 15% cash back at hundreds of stores That's an extra 10% cash back on top of the 15% cash back. You won't see higher cash back rates than these. Go to racketon.com or download the Rakuten app at R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. So let's talk about who the players are in sex trafficking. So from my understanding, there's pimps, traffickers, buyers, And then those who are trafficked. And I'm not sure what you want to label those folks as, because I know victim is not the best word, but I'm not sure how to describe those folks. So, can somebody help us understand, like, what a pimp is exactly? Are there any other, like, what is a trafficker? Help us understand this, like, landscape a little bit more.
1: Sure. I'll start off, you guys, and then I'll pass the mic off to one of our girls. It's Ryan speaking. So, actually pimping, the word pimp first appeared in English in, I believe it was around 1605, 1610. I can't remember the exact date. And what it meant, like the origin, is it meant to be dressed elegantly. And it meant to participate and be alluring and seductive in dress, which is kind of where you see how pimping could have become the word, like how it began as the word pimp because a lot of the pimps dressed very swanky. You know, there's a lot of swag. There was a lot of velvet and jewels and ritz and glitz. But actually pimps themselves outside, like the word pimping began in like the 1600s. But pimps did not become to become what they were, what we culturally understand them as now until the 1920s. Because up until the 1920s, brothels were actually run by women. And then it became outlawed, especially in America. And when it became outlawed, and before that, women, you know, there was, I cannot remember her name, but there was a... A prostitute, a brothel owner, a madam that actually helped to rebuild the city of Seattle. She like single handedly actually financed the rebuilding of Seattle after it burnt down. And but in the 1920s, it became outlawed to have a brothels and to have to have women as prostitutes. And so, if a woman was found walking by herself, she would be harassed by police. And so that's when women actually started bringing men in and saying and asking for them to walk with them, to protect them. And so it was actually in the 1920s when pimping was first established, wherein a man became the protector of a woman who was selling uh, during the underground commercial sex economy. helped that to boom. So I'm going to go ahead and pass the mic now uh, because this is such a fun topic to discuss.
3: Anybody else? That was a great breakdown, Ryan. Um, so, I think terminology wise, when we're speaking, I think, depending on, I think something that's important to note is that when we're having these discussions, right, like this room, verbiage is so up in the air because this topic is such a newly spotlighted topic that everybody's narrative that has the lived experience is so different, right? Like you said, some people are comfortable with referring to themselves as a, as a victim previously, or somebody that was victimized. Some people are comfortable with the term survivor of sex trafficking. Um, Some people are more comfortable with like, I prefer lived experience expert. When we're talking about terminology, you're going to hear a lot of different terms. There's about three or four terms for each category. So I guess I can do my part in trying to break that part down and then other people can explain the definition. So pimp, in my experience was pimp or my folks. So that's probably something you're gonna hear more about around people that have really shared this experience that are talking amongst each other. I wouldn't say that probably when I'm doing a presentation because everyone's not gonna know what I'm talking about. But folks is basically the origin of the pimp, as Rayanne explained, as it expanded, was really that protector. So you'll hear a term like daddy, girls a lot, if not just girls, uh, men and women, boys and girls will refer to the person. That they're in a relationship with, who is possibly exploiting them as their daddy. Reason being, a lot of pimps come in to take the place, if you want to so call it, daddy issues or people with daddy or mommy issues, where it's something that you're missing, right? So basically, a pimp's job is to come in and provide where your experience lacks, where your home structure lacks, whether that be a protector, a provider, somebody to just act like they love you, somebody who teaches you how to get financially stable, somebody who enhances your life, somebody who brings your life down because all you know is, is abuse and that feels normal to you. So that term daddy comes from that protective factor, at least in my experience. Um, so you can hear pimp, daddy, folks, um, trafficker, exploiter, I may be missing one, but with the buyers, a buyer is going to either be referred to as a sex buyer, a trick, just a buyer, uh, John, again. I'm Don't I forget be- Madam and Sister Wives. Thank you. Madam can also be intersected as well or interchangeable sometimes with the trafficker exploiter position, but also can be in that motherly position as well. So yes, Madam, thank you. Sister Wives, wifies. those are going to be the other women or people in your stable i'm not familiar with the term if it's males so like i don't know jose if you have any yeah
0: insight. it also looks like um heather is flashing her mic vigorously and i know that she just joined from the audience so heather did you have something to add or were you just clapping i just want to make sure because you you rose your hand and i wanted to know if you had something to contribute.
5: I do actually. <laughs> so if, if I may share a little, I am a recent uh, sex trafficking survivor. I got out 2014 and my abuser, uh, she's a female and I met her on social media, um, <laughs> which was probably like the biggest mistake I could have ever made. But just as Jamie was saying, this individual went after me because or. I should say I reached out to her first because I was in a situation where I was being stalked by somebody and I had to leave the state of Maine. I didn't feel safe. So of course, I went on to a domestic violence support group on Facebook, which I'm not bashing support groups on Facebook. That's not what I'm saying, but that's where I found her. And she was posting as a her business, um, and she still is posting her business as a underground domestic violence rescue business. Um, (laughs) I will get into the, I won't get into all the details, but basically at night she'll quote unquote, go leave at like midnight or whatever. And she'll go out of state or she'll go out of town sometimes in the same state and she'll go rescue women who are being beaten and can't leave their abuser. I am here to say that that's all false. (laughs) That's not what she's doing. My experience with her was at first, it was the honeymoon stage. Everything was great. Everything was wonderful. Helped take care of her seven kids. And then I'd say within a month of being with her, she took my food stamps. She threw my, she would throw my phones into the lake. She threatened to call the cops on me saying that I was teaching her kids about sex and said that I wasn't going anywhere. If I was going anywhere, it was going to be to jail that I had a choice and or I was going to homeless shelter. Then she would take, obviously oh, take my food stamps. Then she took my section eight paperwork housing that came from the state of Maine. I was supposed to transfer it, transferred it. Okay. She, she took it all. I was supposed to hand it in to get a one bedroom apartment. She never handed in the paperwork. So she took that from me, took my mail, took my money, everything, took my wife like Turned the Wi Fi off, blocked me from the Wi Fi. Okay, so those are just little tactic things. And then she lost the house. Long story, made short, we all ended up homeless, staying in a hotel. And all of a sudden, she started hanging out with these girls, like prostitutes. And I was like, what is up with this? Like, uh, who, what do I know? I know nothing, y'all. Like, I didn't know anything. Like, my my background is foster care. Like, I grew up in foster care. So, and she knew my background. She knew that I was motherless, didn't have a parent, <laughs> you know, was raised in a religious cult, had nobody. And of course, she preyed upon that. I know, I now know that. But I went back to her four times and left her four times. And there's a lot of in between things that I'm not discussing because I, it's just it's too hard for me to go there right now because I'm going to cry. <laughs> But um, she left me homeless in Fort Myers, Florida, left me homeless because I basically would not prostitute. She was like, Oh, we got to put an ad on Backpage. And I was like, Well, wait, what do you mean we? I ain't doing anything, not knowing what Backpage was. So here I am, like, What's a Backpage? Like, looking on my Wi Fi, like, looking on my internet, like, What the heck is that? Next thing you know, there's like a Pounding on the hotel door, you know, this big black guy staring me down. And I was like, oh, hell no. Called a friend from another church and was like, you need to come get me now. The next day, I get picked up from work. She picks me up from work, starts blaming me because she couldn't get into Naples to work with her cousin, air quote unquote work. Basically, I was hindering her from prostituting. And she basically left me home. She dropped me back at the hotel and wow. said, because you wouldn't do this you're out. And I, I called her out on it.
0: That's so terrible, uh, Heather. That's I'm so sorry that happened. I do want to continue the conversation because I really want, we have a lot of ground to cover in terms of just all these different topics that we are going to cover today on the panel in terms of educating everybody about this. But your experience sounds terrible and I'm just really thankful that it sounds like you're out of it, hopefully. And anybody on the panel have any encouraging words for Heather here?
3: I was just going to talk I do think that there are other spaces to um, for us to be able to speak on our experience. I would encourage you to reach out to, I know you had a bad experience with online support groups, but there are legit, I myself being one of the, the resources that provides them. If you need support systems to be able to kind of process through what's going on, please reach out. Reach out. I know how it has a time you know, restriction on this particular room, but please reach out to my Instagram page and I can get you connected with um, some good, good folks that can share that experience and help you process through this.
0: Thank you, Heather. Okay. So let's continue on with this panel. I'm going to quickly just reset the room. You guys are listening to a live episode of Young and Profiting Podcast. We are number one education podcast across all apps. And today we have Leila joining us and it's the Lived Experience Leadership Alliance. So thank you guys so much for being a part of this discussion. And today we are trying to better understand human trafficking. This is a topic that we all have heard about, but A lot of us who haven't lived any of these experiences, like myself, don't really know much about it. So we're going to debunk some misconceptions about this space. We're going to talk about how we can possibly prevent human trafficking, how we can know when it's going on, you know, how to help people heal after they've been through it. So we're going to cover all this ground. We did talk about some common myths, but I do want to talk about a myth that we didn't talk about yet. And that is the myth of people being trafficked are physically unable to leave their situations and they're held against their will. So I don't think that's necessarily always true. Rianne, would you help us debunk this common misconception about human trafficking?
1: All right, I'd love to do that. I was just clapping because it's such a such a common misconception. And I know that everybody here has their own experience. I will say, you know, I was trafficked numerous times through different gangs. And when I was first brought in, I was groomed by a 15-year-old female. And I was on the run. My experience with sex was that of having been raped and then gang raped by my boyfriend. And so when I met the gang, they took me in as family because I didn't have a home. I didn't have a safe place. And they were my family. And what I did, I thought that I was choosing out of loyalty to be a part of something bigger than myself. And I knew how to stand up against screaming and yelling. I knew what manipulation was. I knew obviously what violence was, you know, but I had no armor, no defenses for what I took to be love and affection and inclusion and validation. Um, I didn't have the necessary tools to understand that these people were needing needs that I had not had met as a child, even though I was still a child. And so I stayed out of um, loyalty. It might've been misguided. Um, some people might call it Stockholm syndrome, but ultimately, my survival was attached to the survival of the group you know kind of like a little beehive and when I was picked up I was kidnapped by my second pimp and forced to stay with him and he did in the beginning he used force he used nooses he used hot knives he broke another one of my sister wives you know he cracked her sternum and broke her nose and her teeth and he used these forms of violence as a way of controlling us to intimidate us and then he would also you know. Know, withhold food and or withhold clothing to keep us in line and he would you know use intimidation tactics like and torture tactics like keeping us up all night not letting us sleep because he'd be high on drugs and so we became very like a kind of like a shell within ourselves where we feared it's called um fear conditioning which behavioral analysts study at great length it was a really fascinating child subject that they used to teach him to be scared of a white bunny rabbit or a white bear and what they did is every time this child saw this white bear they would blast a loud sound right which induced this fear so anytime the child saw this little bear afterwards he would immediately start to cry and essentially that's what my second did as he did fear conditioning and so even the thought of exiting or trying to escape him you know it seemed insurmountable when i left him it was i threatened to commit suicide and i ended up actually getting picked up and brought in to a secondary one through straight up force and i was able to run from that one because they broke my nose and dislocated my arm and it was it was just all kinds of nasty and I was able to run because fear was the conditioner then where, you know, when you use fear as a tactic, eventually something big enough and bad enough is going to come along that disrupts whatever it is that you're currently afraid of, right? And so you kind of throw that person under the bus or whatever it is, you're going to throw it away in an effort to save yourself. And so you know, fear doesn't exactly hold us immobile forever. It holds us immobile until the pain becomes so big that we cannot shift or move around it. In my, At least that's been my experience. Um, and when it comes to exploiters, people who come along and manipulate you, why we are privy, why we are susceptible to exploitation even after we exit the game or the life it has to do with the, not just the conditioning, but this behavioral patterning where like a habit, something, somebody, the smell, the sight, the sound, something triggers a behavior within us. And because our neurosynaptic flows have been running so deep within the brain for so long that we engage in a behavior or an attitude Um, where it triggers a belief system about us that runs subconsciously and kind of like autopilot driving, all of a sudden you find yourself in the act of doing something and not remembering how you got there. So I I hope that that answers a few of the different You know, ways in which fear is not the way that always controls us, but more so habit and perceived love and instability and childhood patterning. And one other thing is epigenetics. And that's something I speak about all the time. I'm obviously not an expert. I just love to read a lot. And when we have this intergenerational trauma that's been passed down and is a somatic memory, a cellular memory, when our environment triggers that within us, we can display behaviors that have been passed down as a survival technique and tool And so I think that a lot of us that have experienced sex trafficking and or exploitation, abuse, or domestic violence, a lot of us actually have intergenerational trauma. I don't think I've ever met a single person that doesn't have something. And so we can become held hostage by our own genetics in a way until such a time when we have the tools or when someone comes to us and presents us with the information that allows us to digest what it is that we've been partaking in and, you know, act from a different Uh, level of reasoning or compassion for ourselves. This is
0: Rand. Thank you. I'm done speaking. This episode of Yap is sponsored by Olay Body. Guys, I know most of you are still working from home right now, and I want to stress that you cannot skip your morning shower, even though sometimes it's tempting to wait until later in the day. Morning showers are super important. If I don't take a shower in the morning, I feel sluggish and unmotivated all day. Showering is much more than just getting clean for me. It means taking care of my body while also promoting self-love. It gives me confidence and the energy I need to seize the day. And now my showers are even better since Olay just launched a new collection of skincare inspired body washes that include premium skincare ingredients. I personally love Olay's soothing body wash with vitamin B3 complex and oat extract, which is perfect for eczema prone skin. It transforms skin from dry, cracked and rough to visibly healthy, strong and plump. Fun fact, I only use fragrance-free products. I personally get really bad headaches from fragrance, and I find that using fragrance-free products keeps my skin super young and tight. I've been using Olay products since high school, and I love their fragrance-free products. Olay's Soothing Body Wash with Vitamin B3 Complex and Oat Extract is completely 100% fragrance-free, which is very hard to find, and now I'm hooked. And while it's super moisturizing, it doesn't leave a filmy residue like other soaps, and it lathers up super nice. You need to give these Olay body washes a try. They completely changed how I thought about my body care routine and my shower. You can find Olay body care products in the store or online. Olay body, fearless in my skin. Thanks, Fran. I think that was a great explanation. So with that, I'm going to continue on with the guided portion of this interview. And I want to know about if there's people or groups of people who are more susceptible than others when it comes to being human trafficked because there's a lot of common sayings out there like it can happen to anyone or it's happening in your backyard and these are all common sayings in the anti human trafficking space but from my understanding there are people who are clearly more sus- susceptible <laughs> oh my god <laughs> susceptible than others according to the data so can you guys break that down for us who is more you know likely to get human trafficked
6: So everyone, my name is Jose. I am a male child sex trafficking survivor. And I think just to add really quickly, another big misconception is that males aren't trafficked, which we could talk about that later. But to answer the question, it all stems down to vulnerabilities and which communities are going to be most vulnerable to human trafficking. And that's going to be areas where you're going to see more poverty. And that saying, it's affecting more of people of color, and the LGBTQ community, especially those that are a person of color and are trans. I think we're seeing that quite often. But I would say those are the communities that are more susceptible to human trafficking, for sure.
3: This is an area that I am extremely passionate about. And everything that Jose said as well, just to add to um, what we're talking about, vulnerable populations, um, I think a lot of times we want to talk about the person that is deemed the victim or the exploited person. But really, um, when we're talking domestic, so U.S. domestic sex trafficking, we just brought it up earlier the systemic oppression is real. And our whole country is literally built off the backs of human trafficking. And the laws that are still relevant today have just adapted to that way of greed and lifestyle. And so when we think of things like mass incarceration and we think of underserved populations and underserved communities, those communities are naturally going to be more susceptible to doing things that are going to put them in a position of exploitation because they're not, there's no equity. They're, they're not given the same opportunities and options from jump. They have to, you know, usually go through things coming from underserved populations. Normally we have to go through things first, then figure out, oh, there's another option or another way to do this after the harms are already been done or done to us. And so the populations that are lacking equity, which unfortunately are going to be margin are, are marginalized populations that are going to be black and brown communities, majority in our country or in the U.S. I don't know where everybody else is from, but um, that is going to play a big part into people making choices that are going to, like I said, put them in exploitive situations. So adding on, as I said, to what Jose was talking about, basically any populations that are overlooked, underserved and are basically, I hate the term, but throwaway, and not just throw away children, but just throw away people in general, the people we overlook, homeless populations, addicted, addicted populations, unaddressed mental health, Things like that, people that don't get emotional support, people that come from homes that are not traditionally given the opportunity to give your, like, like I was, I wasn't in an abusive home per se, but I wasn't also, I was, it was a neglectful home where I wasn't given opportunity to protect myself through life skills and through knowledge. And so when I was thrown into the world, I was very vulnerable and I had to learn through experience. So any populations that are underserved and lacking equity are going to be at more risk.
2: I have a quick list that was compiled actually by this panel. And it is a list of the vulnerabilities to trafficking. And it is abuse, poverty, sexual orientation, religious abuse, racism, every systemic issue that we see in our life, in our society that is all around us, all of those things lead to trafficking because they all lead to abuse in general. Like I am a trafficking survivor. That is at the end of a long list of other checkboxes that I am also a survivor of. Domestic violence, like (laughs) really, religious abuse, sexism, like I, it's complex, but yet it's a very, very simple, anyone who has been stigmatized in society is more susceptible to being exploited.
3: And I'm going to hang up my hat.
0: Thank you. Well, thank you. A
3: way better way to say what I just spent.
0: I think everybody gave, it. <laughs> we, I think we, we all clearly know who is most susceptible now. So thank you guys so much. Those, those were great breakdowns. So, I guess the question I have next is, can we actually prevent ourselves from becoming human trafficked? Like is there a way for us to see the red flags, see the warning signs? Like what are the warning signs that you might be being lured into something that you don't realize is about to get really hairy? Any advice there, Rasha? Yeah, thank you, Hala. I work actually with uh, with youth and we
4: work in in prevention of trafficking obviously you can't you know it's it's not a an easy solution and it's not a, a one fits all kind of uh, solution but in what we do in terms of prevention is that we we share facts as early as possible because youth are the main targets of of trafficking and and what we do is that we have what we call uncomfortable conversations and i know my friends on in the in the panel understand what what i'm talking about is talking about you know sex about toxic relationships about porn about healthy relationships about all areas that parents feel uncomfortable or there's a certain discomfort or taboo to talk about so what we do is that we Talk about the red flags, you know, like, for example, if somebody is difficult to say, but if somebody's acting out, if somebody is having different people pick him up or pick her up from school, or if, if there's a change in, in behavior, it, what's important is when you're young, it's the influence of the peers, and that plays a big role. And just normalizing the language and just talking about it in itself is an education and is, is a preventative tool. But it's not 100%, obviously, prevention, but it's just the beginning of awareness, and that's where prevention really starts. The issue we personally have and with our association is that while the youth are so hungry for this information, and the younger they are, they and they have access to social media, they have access to to misinformation, it's the parents and teachers and the adults that really stop us from getting through to them. And their, their idea of protecting them is by hiding the facts. And that is what we are trying to fight against, if you will, because prevention is ultimately about sharing the truth And sharing the facts. And it it means listening to kids as really young kids. I mean, Jess was talking about, you know, having relations at a very young age. It means talking to kids at a very young age and listening to what they have to say without judgment and really listening and providing them with that safe space to be able to express themselves. And that's something we need to do a lot more of because at this time, Although education is so important and the earlier the better, I find in in my area of work and um, I've spoken with my friends on the panel is that the adults and the parents are the ones and the teachers are the ones that are afraid, not the students, not the children because they're hungry for that information and they need that information to protect themselves. I'm Rasha and I'm done.
0: I think that's a really, really interesting point, Rasha. I mean, and something that we don't often hear about. And it's so true. Like human trafficking isn't something that we learned about in school. We didn't learn about it in sex ed. We we just kind of left with no tools to kind of protect ourselves as young kids. And I think it's even worse when you grow up with like immigrant parents or parents who are naive. Because I think that you're just left with kind of no guidance. And and if your parents are kind of naive to what's going on, I think it could be really, really dangerous. So super interesting stuff, Rasha. Thank you, Hala. I just wanted to add something is that
4: we do talk about minorities. We do talk about groups and groups with sexual different. I mean, sexual orientation, whatever, you know, I don't like to, I don't like to, to label these categories, people as categories and put them in boxes. But, but the truth is it happens across the board. I mean, I live in Switzerland and, you know, you tend to think, oh, the strangers are the ones that will traffic you. No, it's not the case. You'll find people, well-off families, very well-off and high upper class, social class that are trafficked because there's no communication and they are trafficked by people that they know. So this is a myth that that really needs to be debunked here, you know. And actually I have to say that the first victim or survivor of human trafficking that I've ever seen was in Switzerland of all places. So this is something we really need to it's a message that's extremely important that it doesn't happen in certain areas. It happens in more, perhaps, in more vulnerable groups or we don't talk about it enough because there's a lot of shame, but it happens across the board. It happens everywhere. It happens in all social classes
0: and it happens in every country every single day. Mm, I think that's some great clarification. Thank you so much. So we did have some hands raised. Pajero, I would love to give you an opportunity to... Add your contribution, you know, let us know what you wanted to add to this topic. And then I'm going to go ahead and reset the room. Hi, Hala. Hello.
7: How are you? My name is Piero speaking. Thanks so much for um, this opportunity. Wow. Firstly, I'm surrounded by such powerful women. And this is amazing to see because my mum taught me extremely well. And that's another side topic we could get into. One of the things that I want to raise, I'm a counseling psychology practitioner of modern applied psychology, and I'm expert in addictions and neurological thought patterning. And I'm currently working with students right now exactly on what Rash is talking about. And I'm in a little tiny town in Goulburn, Australia in New South Wales, two hours from Sydney. What I would like to share, there's plenty I could talk about trafficking in regards with people that I've met. What I would like to share is this, and I think It could be very deep and it's going to raise, it's going to elevate the thought of the room. And that is this, when I was teaching some children yesterday, so I go in and I've got my own set program with them. When I was talking to them yesterday about thought patterns, when I was talking to them yesterday in regards with, like in the context of words and language, I asked the room and there's 52 kids, I asked them what their meaning, instant word meaning was for the word discipline. And 98% of the room came back with discipline is punishment, rules, and restraint. Two people that are very athletic said training and practice. Now, I then did an anchoring exercise because I'm a master practitioner in NLP and I teach NLP. So I did an anchoring exercise for the whole group around that discipline, their new meaning discipline is practice because they're in year 12 and I'm mentoring through to their school certificate or their final year of education. Why I'm bringing this story up is because of this. I asked a few of them where they got the the reasoning or the meaning from the word discipline, which is punishment. They said their parents. Now, obviously, what I teach is our parents are only a subject of what their parents were and the experiences of their parents and their parents and their parents, and we could go back generations. So generationally, I want to share with you now that the majority of us in the room, I'm guessing, are between the ages of, say, 55 and maybe Uh, There could be some of us here that are beautifully looking and they look as young as even Jose. I think I'm pretty sure he's fairly young. The point of my story is this. Our parents were subjected into a time, during a time, where it was the industrial age. Not only that, they were basically in survival mode all the time. So generationally, before that again, if we go all the way back to our two million-year-old brain, there were times where it was completely survival. Now, that then becomes instinctual behavior. Then there's learned behavior. What I mean by learned behaviour is this. Our grandparents, in some way, shape or form, we've been subjected to PSD even just through storytelling. So in our brains, when we're subjected to that, the neurological thought patterning starts stimulating and when it's stimulated, it then creates these synaptic connections which then are related to trauma, past experiences, bad punishment, rules, all these bad things, right? So even if you watch the news now, it's terrible. It can be informative but very little informative. The point I'm trying to make is this. I'm in the school education system right now trying to do exactly what we're talking about and that is change the thought pattern process of language. Because these kids at 18 are already being subjected to through their own parents and their parents lack of educating themselves in regards with personal development don't understand that words like discipline actually means practice or someone who's very well disciplined can be successful and someone even better.
0: Oh, it looks like we, I don't know if it's just me, but it sounds like you just cut out there.
3: No,
7: he
0: did. Okay, does anybody on the panel have anything to add? I do
3: actually,
6: if that's okay. Um, So, Piero, I apologize. um, But when you mentioned the panel, you mentioned women and I am a male and I'm a male survivor. And I, I think that this is a perfect segue into talking about the misconception that only females are being trafficked. And when I say that, I say that clearly just to help people understand how important awareness is and to understand the education around human trafficking, who it's happening to, who's doing it, how it happens. But I think it's very common where... I enter a room and the number one thing that I hear is women and girls and women and girls. And then when people want to include males, they say children. And a lot of times when that happens, it kind of takes away from my story or other male survivor stories. And there's so much stigma around males coming forward as it is. And so I think it's important that anytime that we are speaking about human trafficking, that we are including everyone. We are including males. We are including the LGBTQ. We are including people of color. But I also kind of wanted to add that as a survivor, when I was being trafficked, one of the things that really kind of kept me with my trafficker was not being able to identify myself as or what was happening as being trafficked because I had seen movies or heard about women and girls being trafficked but never in a million years did I think that that could happen to me and so for a long time and until I turned about I want to say 21, I had no idea that what had happened to me was trafficking. And so, like I said, I think it's so important that we're spreading awareness, but we're also including male survivors in the dialogue when we're speaking about it so that other males can identify when it's happening to them or if it happened to them already. I'm Jose and I'm complete. Thank you.
0: Thanks so much, Jose. I think that's a really important point. So thank you for bringing it up and and closing out our misconception question there. I really appreciate it. Young and profiters, Yap Media is growing so fast. I have 10 open roles just this month. In the past, it would take me so long to find hires. I have to go on all these different job sites. I have to create my own skills assessments. That's why I let Indeed do a lot of this heavy lifting for me. Offer is good for a limited time. Claim your $75 sponsored job credit at indeed.com slash profiting. Again, that's indeed.com slash profiting and support the show by saying you heard about it on Young and Profiting Podcast. Again, it's indeed.com slash profiting to get your $75 credit. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Young and Profiters, as you may know, I launched my LinkedIn Secrets Masterclass a little bit over a year ago. It was my first course. Go to shopify.com slash profiting now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash profiting. So this brings me to my next question. I was doing research for this panel and, you know... I remember researching about this in college or something and I remember there was a lot of documentation about how you need to be on the lookout for people in like the grocery store, for example, to see if they've been trafficked and, you know, they gave some descriptions of what people would look like or some behaviors that you would see. But then... When I was researching this time around, I noticed that a lot of the publications are moving away from that. And a lot of them are saying, chances are there's going to be nothing visible. There's nothing you can see from across the room or up close that should alert you that a stranger is being trafficked. So do you guys agree? Are there any telltale signs in terms of body language or behavior that signals that somebody is in danger and potentially being human trafficked? And if not, like... What did we do instead? What is the role that we as citizens who are not in danger right now, what do we do to kind of help this situation and be alert in terms of what's going on?
3: I'll try to be quick. I feel like, again, pertaining to each individual, the situations are so different across the board that I think to touch on what Jose had said as well, going into this topic, that is why... Inclusive awareness is so important because yes, there are some people who are physically abused daily, where the obvious signs are going to be there that those red flag kind of lists give you. There are body language signals that can happen with the, for example, um, I had a real big issue with eye contact. I was not supposed to look at anybody in the eyes unless they were purchasing, and so for me that projected in my body language, but there's also the other side where there are people who who are extremely confident and are still being exploited who take a whole nother approach. So I think when we're looking at red flags, it's very difficult list to compile because it's very generalized. And so when we're talking about what can we do as people, for me, it goes down to what I constantly preach, which is, which is humanity. We're not going to know. We're just like, we're not going to know if somebody is in a domestic violence situation because domestic violence can be financial abuse, can be verbal abuse, can be emotional abuse, can be physical abuse. We're not going to know if somebody's in that situation unless they, they uh, tell us that. Right. And so what do we do? We build rapport and we build relationship with people and we act as humans and we don't try to navigate and label what it is somebody's life what's happening in somebody's life. Um, We don't do that with any other scenarios. Um. except maybe child abuse. And for some reason, sex trafficking, we try to identify and try to intervene with people's lives in this way that we don't do with any other scenario of people's lives. And so I think when we are talking about what do we do, what are solutions, we have to route it back to way before where all of this shifted and turned, where society turned into a society of that person's not my business, I don't want to know what's going on, I'm going to judge but not care. And so looking people in the eye, asking people how their day is going, asking people how they are and really caring for the response versus just waiting for the oh, I'm good and moving on with your day, building rapport and relationship in society and in community is going to naturally help people come forward with their struggles emotionally and physically and mentally and spiritually and all of these ways. um, When we give people space and we are the creators of that space to be safe um, and come forward with their vulnerabilities and with the things that are going on in our life, that's when we can identify what's going on. And we cannot try to go down a red flag list and say, oh, she checks these boxes. He checks these boxes. Let's um, call the human trafficking hotline and report it. Because then what? Even if that's so, then what? And so we still need to build relationship, build rapport, build love and build an actual care for other human beings and that's going to make them comfortable to trust you to the point where they can reveal that they need support they need um whatever it is that they need in their life and so that would be my reroute to that question
0: thanks jamie does anybody else have anything to add in terms of what we can do and what role we play in preventing human trafficking let's go to jess
2: I just want to say hell yes to Jamie because everything she said is absolutely right. And January is out doing the work on the ground, street level. She happens to be available right now. January, are you still there?
8: Yes, I just can.
2: I, I can I pass the mic? Oh, I love your voice, and I want to hear it,
8: girlfriend. Uh, did I? hi. Victim of teen trafficking, and I trafficked myself after that. And what that means is that I became my own trafficker, um, where I sold myself and I brought other people in to be sold along with me. And through that process, it landed me 10 years in prison, an addiction that I couldn't shake. And so I have over 15 years in recovery, and I've started my own organization that's Night Street Outreach for Sex Exploited High Risk sex workers and trafficked youth, LGBTQ, women and men. Our biggest night is Tuesday. We probably meet with about 150 people in high-risk environments, low-end hotels. And, and believe it or not, I'm in Utah, Salt Lake City, Utah. And uh, I think we're breaking stigmas in Utah because we have quite a few outreaches. We're an approved syringe exchange. There are states that don't even approve you to do harm reduction. And in that harm reduction equals connection where I meet these women and give them condoms and I give them clean injection supplies and I knock on their doors. I'm not waiting for them to call me because there's a myth that if you're being trafficked, you want out. And that's a myth because most of these women don't know how to get out. They don't think they're worth getting out and they don't know that there's hope to get out. And so we knock on their hotel doors. We build relationships with the pimps so these women can meet with us. And most of these pimps and high-risk drug dealers come to us to get supplies for their women because they want, like, like believe it or not, like, women and trafficking, like, you're replaceable, right? Like, and so women can get out, and we're told that we can't, and we're told more by social media and movies. But really, out there, you're, like, as soon as you leave, the next girl's up in line, and there's girls waiting to take that place, Right. Like when I got out, there was women so competitive with me, with my trafficker and with my pimp. They wanted my place, like they wanted to replace me. So they were waiting for me to exit out. Right. And so I try to be a voice for the very low end street trafficking that happens. And I heard quite a bit of people talk today and I love all the people on this panel, but um, Jess brought up like my story is not my first trafficker was silence, right? So it wasn't a purse. It was me. Like I was my first trafficker because I stayed silent when I got molested and when I got abused, when I was held hostage, when I was taking cases for other people in my pimp, when I was taking cases for my boyfriend that, you know, sold me for sex. Like I was the main predator in my life because I stayed silent. It wasn't them. I stayed silent and I stayed. And so when I share my story, I share about silence is my first trafficker because I didn't have a voice. And so we go out there to be a voice for these women and for these this marginalized community. We're even a voice for the Johns. We're a voice for the pimps and we're a voice for the gang members out there that this is all they learned how to do is to Like this is how they have survived also is that their dad pimped women or pimped their mom. And so they go out and pimp their girlfriend. And so we're a voice for all that. And so like in Utah, we've created a victim services committee with 14 different organizations all the way from like the prison pipeline, from the FBI, from the attorney general's office, from low from grassroots organizations for. Just specifically human trafficking. So these guys can have wraparound services that when I'm doing street outreach, I refer someone, someone refers them, and then we exit them out. And we even do it with youth because we have youth homeless shelters in Salt Lake City that hold 75 youth. And if you're not there by 7 p.m., the place is full and then they're out on the corner. And then we do outreach there mm-hmm. that are getting trafficked in the homeless. And sometimes to get these girls out because their traffickers are waiting, we have to arrest the youth to get them into a safe housing because they don't know how to get out and they don't know what that, they don't know what's happening to them. So we got to sometimes bring law enforcement in To arrest them so they can get away from their trafficker. And then we get them into safe housing with a survivor peer support leader and share their story with them and say, hey, if you want to go back there, I'll drop you off on that corner. But if you want to go to a human trafficking home in Arizona, I will drive you right now. And most, and like three of them, I got out like three weeks ago where I we drove them to Arizona. We drove them to California and we drove them straight from that moment, but they didn't even know they were being trafficked. So like sometimes like you have to do some kind of enforcement, but other times it's just about connection and doing the groundwork. And I, I'm definitely on outreach. I just wanted to Get on here. I probably can't get on again and answer questions. Um, me being on my phone is a risk, but I can listen. You know, I'm in a hotel that just went down for trafficking where 30 women were trafficked and they were sent across the border in Canada through video in these hotel rooms. And now they use this room, this hotel for sex credit, like sex offenders. And now I have children in this hotel. Tell and I have women in here and I'm trying to yank them out and I'm trying to tell them and this hotel is really a mess for me right now. And it's really emotional because I don't do well with this type of stuff. Right. And so one thing I know is that people say hurt people, hurt people. But I do know another thing is if heal people, heal people. And I feel like I've done the work to heal, but that doesn't mean that I'm exempt from like this disease of trafficking that's happened for a long time. And so I really appreciate being on the panel. I've been listening to you guys. Like I know some of you guys are really close to me. Some of you, I don't even know, but get involved with your grassroots local organizations that are survivor led, not billion dollar industries. I mean, you talk about this trafficking industry is a billion dollar industry. Check out some of the trafficking organizations that are just as much as trafficking other women for because they're for sale, selling their story so they can make mainstream and trafficking is not mainstream. It's in your back door. It's in your neighborhood. It's in your school. It's with your teacher. And I got trafficked by a badge in prison for 10 years. It's in your correction system. And so Get with the local grassroots survivor peer ran organizations. And if you're listening and you want to get involved in the fight and that's all I got.
0: Okay. Thanks, January. All right. So I'm going to open it up to questions and we're going to close out the room. So Anna Lucia, you're up first. How can we help you? Thank you so much for having me. And thank you
9: so much for this interesting room. I feel it's something that As you said, we need to get educated on and um, get more knowledge. And uh, this firsthand information, it's just like so touching. So thank you all. I honestly like recognize all of you like great people. I mean, I have no words. I have a question and my question was like, what would you advise a survivor when their abuser is harassing them on social media while playing the victim? A little bit more context, like I was not as sexual trafficked person, but I was like uh, abused violently. And it was like this guy uh, hit me and he was really mean. And uh, he kept on going into like Instagram, creating accounts to follow me and like I got that under control because I um, decide what to publish or not, or where to get myself into or not. And now that I'm in Clubhouse, he just got into it and he kept like following me and like keep going on clubs or on like rooms where I was. So it's really suffocating, you know, because like you just want to get over it, like. Let me live my life. It's over. I'm done. I'm moving on. But it's like really annoying because he not he's not the only one to do this. He like ask his friends and you can see it. What advice could you like give me or someone in the same kind of situation? Thank you.
2: Oh, this is fun. I'm going to rope this into parenting as well because um, I have five children and three of them are teenagers. One's an adult. One is almost a teen. and So it's something that I have worked to instill in my children and that I had to learn how to do myself. And it is to become simply unabusable. And in order to become unabusable, your self-worth your self-confidence, your, dare I say, ego needs to be so large. And I'm not talking about fake it till you make it. I'm talking about in the depths of your soul, you need to become so fucking powerful and understand that you being here today on this planet at this moment in time, is so remarkable. It is not a coincidence that you have a power that is inside of you. You have a purpose and a vision, and no one should be able to stop you. I believe that that is the spirit that we need to put into our children from the moment they can speak, from the moment they're able to rise, that when we have that or when, like myself, learn it as an adult, it makes it to where, just like um, manifesting or law of attraction, we literally can repel the people who seek to abuse us. And I do want to put a cliff note in there. There's always a fucking crazy asshole. (laughs) like There always is. And so you do have to put extra barriers around you sometimes. But for the most part, really just by believing and loving and caring and nurturing for your soul, you can become so powerful that you can actually repel those people from you. So I'm
3: Jess. I'm done. I just want to add a quick, like a little, I think that that is amazing and just something that had worked for me like a little bit, but we are getting to that space, uh, social media wise, uh, if it's just on social media, creating a fake account that that person can follow and limiting, you know, your photo on your main account for a while, just till they kind of fall off has, was helpful for me doing a little bit of posting on the fake profile. So they think that they're following, whoever they're following, but not really putting any of your real information. And, you know, the block button is is great. Like if you have to block somebody 50,000 times, so be it. And if you have to set in place a restraining order, so be it. Then those are the steps that you would have to take tangibly while you are getting into that process. Cause you know, the overnight process or that process to get to where Jess, she's had to put in a lot of work to get there. People have to put in a lot of work to get there. And in the meantime, we want to keep ourselves you know, safe as well. So definitely taking the steps and Google is, Google's your friend, Google, there's lots of articles on cyber stalking and how to protect yourself. It is a crime. And so I would definitely suggest putting up your defense on the legal side if necessary, if you feel like your life is in any type of danger. Thank you, Jamie. I got way too philosophical.
0: We got the philosophical and like the realistic approach. It was great. It's a good job tag team. All right. So we're going to kick it over to Kaylee. There you go. What is your question for the panel? How can we help you?
10: Hi. So I am actually a child sex trafficking survivor as well. And I live in Utah. And so the reason why I hopped in on this panel was just to connect with all of you. And especially January with her being out in Salt Lake City. I'm like... 15 minutes away. Yeah. So, grassroots activism is just like my oh, it's like my soul's calling. I love grassroots activism and just to get involved in the local community and you know just do what I can because I'm still recovering from this. My mom ended up, just a l- little bit of my story. My mom ended up selling me to her boyfriend so that he would pay her rent because she couldn't afford rent anymore and I don't remember who was talking about silence being their first trafficker and staying silent through it. But I resonated so much with that. And I've had to go through so much therapy to realize that it wasn't my fault, that children aren't expected to recognize what's happening to them, even when it's so severe and to speak up. But yeah, just getting involved and you know coming in on here and, and meeting you all and hearing, your all, hearing all of your stories is just heartbreaking and And heartwarming knowing that, you know, you all are talking about this and just any way that, you know, if you all continue this fight out of the rooms, out of a clubhouse or off social media or on social media, I would just love to get involved and and connect with you all because this really is my passion. And, and yeah, so I'm Kaylee. Thank you for letting me come up here.
0: Of course. Thank you for your contribution. And I hope everybody on stage gives Kayla a follow. Uh, Thank you so much for contributing and providing value and sharing your story with us. We appreciate it. Okay. So the last question I have for the panel to close us out here is, what does a healing journey look like for a victim in this space? Then the last final question after that will be like, what do you want to leave everybody with in terms of like next steps? What is the immediate action for everyone to take? So let's start with the healing journey. It looks like Rasha has something to add.
4: No, I was going to actually respond to Kaylee. Oh, okay. Healing is is not my, is I think other people are are better than, than me because I'm in more in the education part. Just very quickly that, um, I just want to really focus on the fact that while our the panel has had difficult journeys I think they are an example of absolute empowerment and strength and this is what I want people to take away from this conversation it's not the victim is the fact that everyone is extremely strong and empowered and 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 such an inspiration and a and an example to so many. So that's just what I wanted to respond to Kaylee. Thank
0: you. Thank you. Jose?
6: Yeah, I can definitely touch a little bit on the healing process. And I just want to add that the healing process is so different for everyone. You know, we all come from different backgrounds. We all come from different stories. You know, But I can speak on my own experience. And like I said, for a long time, not even realizing that what happened to me was human trafficking, I didn't really understand what was happening to me, you know, having panic attacks, PTSD, anxiety, depression, all of these things that were holding me back from being able to do simple things like, or I shouldn't say simple, but things like going to work and holding a job or, you know, going to college, finishing school. A lot of times I felt as though, how is it that one day I had all of these dreams, all of these goals, and I was working so hard at it that then the next day, suddenly I'm just like not interested in in it anymore. And I began spiraling. I became extremely toxic. I started pushing, you know, people who loved me and cared about me, friends, family members. I ended jobs. I burned bridges. I did a lot of things in that process. And once I started to understand, first of all, I could identify that I was trafficked. I then had a better understanding of that I needed needed some kind of help. I needed therapy. I needed someone to really help me understand what was happening to my body and why I wasn't interested anymore in doing anything or becoming anyone. And so once I identified and once I had a better understanding, I then started listening to my body and I learned that I needed to make changes in my life. I needed to maybe... Either stop my drinking, my partying, or slow down. And once I did that, I started healthier habits, eating better, working out. And once I started to grow stronger, I started to see that old person again or younger person again, I I guess I should say. And I started to get my shit together. And I had my very first paycheck, which was for like $500. And I was so proud of myself. And it was the first time that I could pat myself on the back and say, you're doing it and you're going to get somewhere and you're going to make it big. And I started my healing process there. And to be honest with you, I'll probably be healing like the rest of us for the rest of our lives. You know, life is a journey of growth and understanding. And that is basically my healing journey so far.
0: Thank you, Jose. I think that was like beautifully said. So thank you guys so much. Okay, so then the last question I have for the panel here is what do you want everybody to do next? What is the action that we can take to support the end of human trafficking? What do you guys think that we should do as good citizens. Rianne?
1: Yay! Um, I just want to, first I want to say, Jose, I love you so much. You just, you just grasped everything. I think all of us have been on very, very similar journeys. You know, our expressions of our trauma and our pain and our experiences might manifest differently, but ultimately, you know, um, I think that we've all experienced certain road bumps at different times of our life that you spoke about, you know, so thank you so much for, you know, just kind of addressing all of that and healing. I have to be honest with you guys, I'm going to get woo-woo as fuck and the healing really, I think it boils down to love. I personally believe that the soul is love in a constant state of expansion. And what I mean by that is learning and becoming aware, and that awareness you know it has to extend to compassion and forgiveness for ourselves and many of us are born into this life born into this world not knowing of our ancestry not knowing our own history and also coping with behavioral patterning and epigenetics and environmental factors and neurological chemistry that that has been passed down that we know nothing about and so it is our job it is our duty it is our responsibility to to take that on and to constantly dig deeper within ourselves. And you know, women, we are the ones that have the children. And I don't know how many of you in the audience know this, but you know, we can trace epigenetical memories. I believe it's back to 14 generations. When you were a cell in your mother's body, she was an egg in her mother's body. And so you and your grandmother and your mother all possessed literally the same space. And that information gets passed down, right? And, and through the somatic memory. And and that's memory that's stored in ourselves, right? Um, so that we have those physical feelings. And, and that's when I say like healing, it really begins with addressing ourselves and working down to the core layers and discovering what are our core values and how can we manifest the life that we want, the life that's possible for ourselves and how can we heal the areas of our life that have become toxic? How can we stop ourselves from hurting ourselves, which in itself lends to us hurting other people because a lot of us need to learn about boundaries because we those were stripped from us. And so I think that ultimately How we end human trafficking is we actually have to turn inward and find our own divinity, our own just glorious soul and purpose. And we have to strive towards healing ourselves because everything else extends outwards. And, you know, I can't impact or influence another person if I'm not capable of demonstrating that which I'm speaking of. Right. And so I think that when we all stand within our own power and we all take the tools that are all around us and we use that to impact our lives, that goodness, that love, that validation starts to come internally and then it rolls outwards like a raindrop and it affects the whole world around us. And yeah, so I guess um, that's really how I think human trafficking is going to end is when we all take take that love and we spread it outwards. So
0: thank you. This is Ryan I'm done speaking now. Thank you so much. I think that was... An incredible explanation and a great way to end the show tonight. So thank you guys all for tuning in to the Fight to End Human Trafficking on Young and Profiting Podcast. Thank you to all the wonderful panelists today. You guys will be introed properly on the podcast and in the show notes and all of that. And everybody can click on your bios to find out about you guys. But with that, have a good night. This is Hala and panel signing off. Thank you guys very much.